into our land because you've basically got two types of people by this point. You've got people who are either living under direct Viking rule because some of the Vikings stayed around or you've got people whose land is imminently going to be invaded by the Vikings next time they come. So what's to be done about that? Well, Alfred's idea was to build uh, what are called burrs or from which we get our word borough or burg. And they looked a little bit like this. They were essentially uh, a fortified town, uh, a fortified gathering point. Uh, There might be a a ditch or a bank outside it. There'd be walls that were protected. There'd be gates. And these were mustering points across the land. He built like 30 of them. He built or renovated them. And they were to be points where his army could gather at very quick notice. There was no more than like 19 miles of road between any of them. But also, very importantly, they were places of safety and security in themselves. They weren't simply barracks. They weren't where the soldiers lived. They were where people lived. You can see in that drawing that there are houses there, uh, that there was a church there, that markets uh, took place there. This is where uh, ideas could be exchanged, where trade could happen, where worship happened, where people got to know each other, uh, where culture was made, where art was made. In this place, people could feel safe. They were uh, able to live peaceful lives rather than outside there, which was essentially wilderness and warfare land. And this is what Alfred did. And life in there was more than just survival. Outside, the Vikings could come and get you at any point. But inside, you were safe. Inside, you were protected. Now, why am I telling you this? Because basically, I couldn't get this idea out of my head uh, this week as I was preparing for this preach. And I was like, it's a slightly odd idea. I'm not sure if I'm going to share it or not. And then this morning, my, just my regular Bible reading, just reading through chapter at a time, I came to 1 Samuel chapter 22. And what happens there is that David, who's been anointed by God to be king, but isn't king yet, is fleeing from the present king, Saul. And he flees to a cave, uh, to a cave that's called Adullam's Cave. And it says, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and they were with him about 400 men. And it was again the same idea of gathering to a place of safety coming together, but not as a kind of, oh, now we're all together, we'll be all right. But in this place is safe. There is danger out there, but this place is safe. And that being part of God's provision for us. His kingdom is a place of safety for us. It's a place, of, uh, it's a place where we can flourish, where we can be fruitful. And it isn't geographical. So we can be like, oh, here's a church building, so this must be fine. But outside, who knows? That's not really how it works because we all know that our own lives aren't divided by geography. We know that ourselves, we're mixed in between. There's parts of us that we are very happy with and other parts of us that we hate and we wish weren't there. So this isn't, when we talk about the kingdom of God, it isn't like, well, it's a church or a house that belongs to a Christian. It's wherever God's will is done. It's wherever God is obeyed. And I think there's something in this picture for us to understand as we look tonight at what sexual immorality is. We've been looking positively over the last few weeks at what gender is, 
how God has made us, man and woman, how we are equal in his eyes and equal in value, and yet how we're different, and those differences should complement each other. We've looked at marriage, how it's God's great idea for one man and one woman to be united for their lifetime. That complementarity between male and female is meant to come together in marriage between a man and a woman. And it's not just because that fits, but that's because it's God's purpose of demonstrating to the world the relationship and the love that he has for his church. This is the purpose of marriage. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the purpose of singleness. What is singleness? Is singleness like this unfortunate other option if you can't get married? No, not at all. It's another way of demonstrating the sufficiency of God and the goodness of God. And celibate singleness is equally part of God's good design. And that's the... That is the positive case for this is what God has put forth as being good, as being right. To live in those ways is to be within uh, the berg, is to be in the cave, is to be where you are safe and where you are protected. It is to be within the kingdom of God. There's no better place to be. It's not just a place of cold stones where you just kind of go in and someone's kind of forced you in at gunpoint, like, oh, I've got to go in there, okay, fine. No, it's where there is life. It's where there is faith. It's where there's hope. It's where there's friendship and community. It's where there's peace and fruitfulness and flourishing. This is God's intention for us. But tonight, we want to give some definition to what is outside of those walls. What God has said is not good for us. What God has said is uh, is dangerous and harmful and what is not according to his will. And so we're going to look at uh, essentially uh, three areas of this. Uh, Sex by yourself, sex with someone of the same gender and sex with anyone other than the person you're married to. When the Bible talks about sexual immorality, this is essentially what it means, these three areas. And we're going to look at each one of them and uh, why they are outside the walls of the kingdom. And we're going to look at what God says to us as we struggle with these things and the hope that he gives to us. And so we're going to look uh, briefly at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 which in many ways describes what we've talked about in this this sense of there being this place, this berg where you could go, where you would be safe. But Paul's talking to people who are living in a world where everyone else isn't living that way and they are spending, according to Paul, more of their time outside the kingdom of God than within it. And yet they say that they've come to God. So this is what Paul says. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. He says to them, There is a way to live that puts you outside the kingdom of God, in the wilderness, in the danger. And there is a way to live inside the kingdom of God, which you have been brought into. But guys, you're not doing it. And so he reminds them of some of the patterns of behavior that that looks like. And then 
speaks to them about God's love and grace, his care and his restoration and the hope that he gives to all of us. And so that's what we're going to spend our time doing here this evening. Paul says, do not be deceived. It's always helpful to, why does the Bible say that? Because we're easily deceived. We are people who are easily persuaded by others and by our own hearts as well. We live in a world that is opposed to God and his ways and has a much bigger budget uh, to persuade you of that uh, than I do here this evening. But if you want a one-line summary of the state of the world, Romans 1.28 gives it to us. Paul says about uh, just humans, all of us together, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is a way of thinking that is being cut adrift from God and from his ways. One of the things that God does when uh, we persistently rebel against us is he lets us have our way. And so we We don't simply drift further away from him. We are free to march far from him and to go into lands that are unsafe and destructive. And as we do that, we persuade ourselves that this is the way to live. We convince ourselves and we listen to others convincing us that this way that is opposed to God is how we should live. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And yet we're told all the time, the way to live your life is to follow your heart. But the Bible says, no, your heart is deceitful. It will deceive you. It will lie to you. It will act against your own interest. So when Paul says, don't be deceived, he's talking about this. He's talking about the fact that both both out with us and within us, there are things that would deceive us. There are things that would say to live in this way is right and safe and fruitful. And God's saying, no, to live my way is what's right and good, fruitful and for your flourishing. Paul gives a list of the types of behaviour that those who live outside the kingdom exhibit. And it's important to note that there are many of those behaviours listed and not all of them are sexual, uh, but because our series is looking at sex and relationships, those are the ones that we are going to focus on this evening. Uh, Other times, plenty of other times, we will talk about those other issues, but tonight we're talking about these because they are important and they matter. I'm going to summarise them in these, as I've said, these three headings of sex by yourself, sex with someone of the same gender, and sex with someone who you are not married to. All of us, all of us, are going to experience degrees of temptation in each one of those areas. Some to a greater and others to a lesser extent. But all of us will be tempted because we are frail, temptable creatures. It's important to know that to be tempted is not the same as to sin. There is a difference between the two things. Uh, The letter to the Hebrews tells us very clearly that Jesus was tempted and yet without sin. He didn't have that internal deceitful heart that we do also persuading him, but there were sufficient voices around him all the time saying, go this way, live this way. Jesus was tempted. You're tempted. 
It's not the same as sinning. And when we do sin, we are given an immediate way back through repentance. So when you read in these verses, don't be deceived. These, this way of living will not inherit the kingdom of God. One of the questions you might think to yourself is, well, if I do one of those things once, does that mean I'm out? No, because God has offered you an open door into his kingdom at all times, which is to repent, to turn away from your wrongdoing, and to come back to God and find that his arms are open, waiting for you. God loves to forgive. One of the old Puritans, his name I think was Richard Sibbs, says there is more mercy in God than there is sin in us. That's wonderfully true. There's more mercy in God than there's sin in us. You cannot out-sin the mercy of God. But Paul clearly states that living these kind of lifestyles is to take yourself out of God's care and protection. It's almost like it's almost like Paul is at the gates of one of these bergs, and he's seeing uh, he's seeing either Corinthian Christians leaving or already outside, and he's calling them saying. What are you doing there? Where have you gone? I brought you in. I showed you the way in where you were safe, where you could live. And you've gone out again. How has this happened? So my job this evening is to stand at the gate and to say to you, God has made clear what is good and what is not. He's made clear what you can do what keeps you in and what is out with his walls, what is outside his kingdom. It's my job to speak to you about each of those this evening, that you would not live out there, but be brought in to God and his love and his kingdom. Before we get into the details of the three areas, we're going to end with hope, but we need to preface with hope as well. I remember the first time I read uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and it, it just blew my mind. It amazed me that this verse was in the Bible. It's so full of hope. Here it is. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I'm going to speak at length now about these three areas of temptation, these, th- these three areas of sin. And some of them will be particularly pertinent to you. And you will almost think in the midst of it, like, how can I ever get out of this? Will my life ever change? And this verse promises that if you've put your hope in Jesus, God is faithful. And he will give you a way out of that and into the safety of his kingdom. So here we go. I'm on the gate and I'm saying that sex by yourself is to go out of the city of God. And you're probably not going to want to look me in the eye as I say that if you're walking past. You're not going to want to walk past in the daylight if this is an issue for you. You know the confusion of living in a world which simultaneously has allowed pornography to become a $97 billion industry. By estimates, its influence throughout Western culture is pervasive. And yet, masturbation is still mostly a secret that no one wants to share. There are other areas of sexuality and sexual behavior that people are very happy to talk about. 
This one is in front of us all the time, and yet no one really wants to talk about it. It's the butt of jokes at best. You may have been told that it's at school in like sex ed lessons that this is perfectly healthy, it's perfectly natural, and yet it doesn't seem that way. And what happens to those men and women who you watch online certainly isn't healthy. It is exploitation at best and abuse at worst. And what you feel when you look at or think about people you actually know and the the scenarios that you run through in your mind are things that you would never want them to know. And so you try to hide it. Many people, Christians and not Christians, think, I know it's not the best thing, but I wouldn't want to tell anyone about it, but I also feel everyone seems to be saying it's okay. How, does it, how do I work this out? I mean, most people try to hide it. They try to keep a lid on it. But what happens for most people is that they can't keep a lid on it. They can't keep control on it. They, they can't kind of hold it in. And they discover the truth, as David Shearman puts it, that sin always costs more than you want to pay, takes you further than you want to go, and keeps you longer than you want to stay. And masturbation is an area in which that is a common experience of people who are caught up in it. So most people leaving the city on this point would want to do so under the cover of darkness. They wouldn't want to look me in the eye and have a conversation about that. Some might and say, okay, well, what does the Bible say about this then? Because it doesn't seem to talk about it very directly very much, so why are you making this big deal about it? Everyone else tells me it's natural. Well, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So that's one of the Ten Commandments Jesus is talking about. So it's already a very high level of obedience. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I just think that's very clear. Thinking, looking, that kind of behaviour takes you outside of the walls. God has given you, brothers and sisters, God has created men and women in his image that we might bless one another, that we might serve one another, that we might do one another good. And masturbation does none of those things. And lustful thinking and lustful looking is the complete opposite of those things. They are utterly contrary to God's will. And Jesus says they are of the utmost seriousness. And he says, because they're this serious, you have to deal with them seriously. You can't be like, well, I know it's what I mean, it's awkward, but you know, what am I going to do? Oh, well. Jesus says, no, this requires action. This requires radical, definite action. 
And you think to yourself, I really couldn't speak to anyone about this. I'd just be too awkward. Jesus says, no, this requires radical action. You think, I couldn't not have a TV or a smartphone or broadband in my home. I mean, just be ridiculous. And Jesus says, well, this requires radical action. You might think, I I just don't know what it's like to live without this. And Jesus says, I'm giving you radical hope that I can lead you into purity. I can lead you into holiness if you will take radical action with me. The kingdom of God in in that burg, in that place, it's not full of people who are living perfect lives. It's full of people who have been rescued from their sin, who have confessed it to God and are learning how to live a new way. It's full of people who will do whatever it takes to obey God. It's full of people who are asking the Holy Spirit to fill them that he might work his gifts of love and self-control in their lives. He knows that we can't do this by ourselves. That's why he puts us in churches where honest conversations can happen, where we can keep each other accountable, where we can spur one another on to good deeds and to holiness. Second area, sex with someone of the same gender. Now, if people who are struggling with the first category might avoid looking at me, I know how people tempted in this way will look at me because I've had conversations with them. Friends and family members look at me with dread and confusion when I say that homosexual behaviour is outside the kingdom of God, is contrary to what God has said. And, And the kind of questions is, well, Everyone else is suddenly saying it's okay. Why are you still stuck in the past? Why aren't you getting with the program like everyone else is? Or why is this outside of God's kingdom? If it's, if it's loving, I thought God's about love. I love this person. You're saying that I can't love them, but God's love. How does that, how does that work? There's confusion in it and there's also this dread. Are you saying that God doesn't want me to live this way when it's all I've ever known and that to accept what God's saying is going to mean a life of lonely exile for me. Those are real questions and hard questions. Often when I've had conversations with people about this, They have struggled with it for a long time by themselves and it's been difficult and that makes it so much harder to talk about it later on because, well, as as John Piper says, this is true for all areas, but it's been my experience particularly in this. He says, sin is like spiritual leprosy. It deadens your senses so that you rip your soul to shreds and don't even feel it. If you're a Christian and you think this is okay, you think, I, you think man, I don't know why they think, I don't know why these people are saying homosexuality is bad, or I, I know kind of why they are, but I'm still not convinced by it. I want to ask you again to think about the state of your heart, because that's what we're saying about all these different areas, that we're saying that the heart is deceitful above all things. 
And so to follow your heart is a high-risk enterprise that will lead you out of the kingdom of God. Again, if you're like, well, show me where it says this. I would say the whole story says this. Just the logic of the story that from beginning to end, God made them male and female. He brought them together in marriage. Marriage serves its purpose as to point towards Christ and the church's relationship. And that's how things end at the end of the story. The whole flow of the story goes this way. You think, well, why doesn't the world get it? Well, of course the world isn't going to get it because this is God's story. But then more particularly, Jesus was given the opportunity to redefine marriage in Matthew 19. Jesus is the most radical person who ever lived. No kind of cultural forces could lay a finger on him. He was the most loving person who ever lived. He is the most loving person who's ever lived. He is the image of God. He is the very will and purpose of God. And when he was asked about marriage, he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Anything that isn't that isn't right. And all of us have to reckon with that. Now, I know some people who have gone through periods of time in their life where they would say they experienced same-sex attraction and then didn't anymore and have now married someone of the opposite sex. And I know others who would say that they've lived a long time with their feelings this way and they're not expecting them to change, but they won't allow that to define how they live. They won't, they won't, they say, this doesn't set my agenda. God's word sets my agenda. I want to particularly recommend the website Living Out which is a website created by a bunch of Christians who, who have experienced this, who are living this way. And it's full of really helpful resources. Again, the notes for small groups this week will have a whole bunch of stuff that you can read. Whichever way your life goes, God has got grace for you. He loves you. He cares for you. He is putting you in a community of people who love you and care for you and want to help you and want to be with you through this. And he's going to teach you something about carrying a cross that others of us will, will not know. We will not understand it unless you show it to us. Jesus said, whoever will follow me must uh, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So all of us have to do this in some way or other. But if you find yourself experiencing same-sex attraction, you think, I'm, I'm not going to get married if marriage is only between the man and the woman. Then you are carrying a cross. You're obeying Jesus. And we want to help you, and we need to learn from you. Jesus said that we show him our love by obeying him and by living life as he designed it. Now, I know that many people will say that I'm wrong about this. I know that some Christians will say that we're wrong about this, and some of them will try to make their case from the Bible, but I hope I've shown you just through the very simple mainline story of Scripture just doesn't give any possibility of this being what God wants for you. 
Again, so often with sin, secrecy is where it lives and is where it grows and is where it, to be honest, gets out of control. Because you can't deal with it by yourself. It's too powerful for you. But the grace of God, which he so often gives to us through others, will be sufficient if you allow If you allow others, just some close, trusted friends, to help you with this. So let others of us help you and pray for you and pray with you. Let us walk with you. Let us weep with you. Let us share our lives with you and the grace that God so generously gives to you. The third area that's outside of the kingdom of God, sex with someone who you are not married to. Proverbs 6 verse 27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Do not play with fire. It is a great gift in its right place and it can burn the house down when it's misused. Do not play with it. Sex is a gift from God to seal and celebrate the commitment that a man and a woman make to each other in marriage. That is its setting, that is its purpose, that is its place. It happens after they make the most serious vows possible in the presence of God. There is nothing casual about it. It's too great for that. To treat it otherwise is to disobey God. And in this particular era, it's not just to disobey God, it is to drag another outside with you. It's the seal of marriage. It is the sign of marriage. It is the privilege of marriage. And so whether it's someone you've just met or someone you're very close to and hopefully even maybe going to marry and maybe even a committed to marry, you do not get to do this. To do so is to take yourself outside of the will of God. Now, of course, obeying this will be difficult. Like all the other temptations will be for others. And it may well be that the person you're struggling to obey this because of, or you're struggling to obey this with, will one day be the person that you do get to enjoy sex with in marriage. But you do not know what tomorrow will bring. The Bible's very explicit on that point. Some people are like, oh, we can have sex now because we're engaged, or we're really committed, and we're going to probably get married. The Bible says you have no idea what's happening tomorrow. And so you're to obey God today. And to spend time now outside of his will is to set yourself up for worse at a later date. Not because God wants to punish you. He doesn't. He wants to restore you. He wants to bring you in. But because of this, if you have learned to disobey him now, what is going to stop you from doing this again later? If you or the person you're with have learned to rationalize away obeying God, have learned to break God's rules in this area, what is to stop you or them doing that again later on? And why do you think it is you who will benefit from it? You may be married to them and one or other of you have learned not to obey God sexually. What will that look like when you're married? What will the fallout of that be for any children you might have? 
for a church you belong to, for the world who is looking at you to see what godly marriage is. And the stakes are high. The stakes are high in all three of these areas. And all of us have sinned in at least one of them. And all of us will wrestle with temptation in one or other or all of them. God knows. He knows it. He knows you. He remembers who you are. How you were a wanderer in the wilderness, far from the safety of his kingdom. How you were just there to be rampaged over by an enemy who just wanted to take from you and destroy you. And did it with such a good job that he may even have convinced you that this was what life was meant to be like. And such were some of you, Paul says to the Corinthians. Such were some of you. You used to live that way. But what happened? Jesus rescued you. Jesus rescued you. And to bring you into the kingdom of God, he went out. He went out from heaven. He went outside the city of God and took God's punishment, took the violence, took the the consequences of your sin on his own shoulders, died for your sins so that God's anger at what you've done would not have to go on you, but would go on him instead. And so Paul says, you were washed, which is to say you were cleansed from all your sin, the, the filth, the dirt of it, the way that when you've done these things, you then feel like, oh, I just want to, be, I want to be clean again. How do I get clean again? The blood of Jesus washes you clean. Not only were you washed, Paul says, but you were sanctified. This means you were set apart. Even though you were once like everyone else, God says, no, I'm taking you and I'm bringing you into my kingdom. Sanctified is also related to the word holy. God makes you holy. And you were justified, Paul says. Which is a legal term, meaning in the eyes of God, not only is it just as if I'd never sinned, it's just as if I'd always obeyed. These things, Paul says, God will do for you if you will put your hope in him. And by doing so, he brings you in to his kingdom, into the place of safety, in, away from that which would destroy your life. It takes faith to believe this. Faith is the assurance of the things that we have not yet seen. We may have experienced God in our lives, but there'll be moments when we are, we are we're experiencing temptation. And the choice that we make at that moment is determined by faith. Well, I trust that what God has said is right and is best for me, even if now it hurts, even if now I am laughed at, even if now I'm socially ostracized. Will I trust that what God has said is right, is true and is good? All of us have to do this. We have to believe and turn from our old ways. That's what the Bible's word for repentance means. It means to turn away from how we lived. To say to God, I was wrong and you're right. 
Some of you will be realizing this for maybe the first time this evening, the clarity of it. Jesus offers you freely forgiveness if you'll confess what you've done and turn again to him. Others of you are used to feeling guilty about this and you don't know what it's like to feel not guilty, to, be, to have resisted temptation, to have found that way out that God has promised in his word. Tonight, I'm offering you a glimpse of the hope of it. In a couple of weeks' time, Jen Rawson's going to be speaking about how to pursue purity. So you must come back for that because it's an important second half to what I've said this evening. But for tonight, it will be enough to admit that you've got it wrong and that you need Jesus to wash you again. He loves doing so. We will look at our past, we'll look at our behavior, uh, just even your thoughts and you, you, your, instinct, your instinct is to, is to step away from it because we, in the cold light of holiness, we're repulsed by it. And yet God's response to it was to step to us. We might think he'd never want me near him. He says, I want you in my throne room, right in the heart of my kingdom. 1 John 1 verse 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is our hope. That is the truth.